Welcome interior designers and design lovers to another episode of the Daniel House Book Club. I'm your host, Peter Spaulding. Today, I'm flying solo as we continue our exploration of the book 1,000 Chairs. If you missed last week's podcast with the artist and furniture maker Aspen Galen, I'd encourage you to go back and have a listen, as she made for a great guest. And she also mentioned a number of places around the country where you can find her teaching people of all skill sets how to make chairs. So visit AspenGalan.com to see her 2022 in-person teaching schedule. I think one of the best ways to educate ourselves as designers is to get involved in the making process, so we really understand the trials and tribulations involved in realizing the things that we specify. So this is actually our fourth week with this book. I spent the first week complaining about the chairs that weren't included in the book. Then I chatted with the Daniel House Club member designer Kristen Siefkin about some of her favorite chairs, as well as how she uses Daniel House Club planning boards to shop with her clients. And now we're here, and it seems like I should probably get started engaging seriously with some of the chairs that are actually included in this book. I promised we would dig a little deeper into the people behind the chairs to determine just how much their persona had to do with the prolonged fame of their contributions to the world of chair design. To emphasize the point I made a few weeks ago that some of the chairs included make um, mention less because they're overwhelmingly comfortable or successful at connecting with their audience and more because of maybe the name attached with them, I want to begin with the female architect and interior designer Eileen Gray, who surprisingly, or maybe not, is someone I learned very little about in, my, in earning my undergraduate degree in architecture history. To the credit of my professor of modern architecture, who I remember as something of a tyrant, I know I saw at least one image of her work, and I'm pretty sure it was of the interior of her own home on the Bay of Monaco, which she and her romantic partner Jean Badovici designed together, and which they named E1027. The thing about this extraordinary house, an exemplary work of 1920s international style, is that until the late 1960s, even many architectural journalists believed that it was a product of the so-called father of modernism, Le Corbusier. In fact, Le Corbusier did know and love this house, but he had very little to do with its design. Rather, he was friends with Jean Badovici and spent time there after he and Eileen ended their relationship. In the late 1930s, against Gray's will, Le Corbusier painted brightly colored murals on some of the house's interior walls, which one critic likened to a dog urinating over his territory. Her argument was that Le Corbusier's territory, territory was modernism, and he was jealous that a woman could create something so masterful in the idiom he created. Whatever his intent, it is true that Gray's contribution contributions to architecture and furniture have gone much less celebrated than the men with whom she was roughly equal. Actually, I think it's fair to say she was more capable in the area of furniture design than he. Where a lot of his pieces needed to support his machine rhetoric, which we'll get to in a minute, hers really seriously addressed the needs of the human body and some of its spe specific activities. 
First, there's her transat chair, which is an abbreviation of transatlantic. Its form was derived from that of deck chairs on ocean liners at the time. Its independent headrest pivots and its upholstered sling seat suspended from a lacquered wood frame moves to cradle all sorts of sitters. Gray studied both Chinese and Japanese lacquering methods early in her career, and though many of her pieces of furniture use chromed steel tubing, her use of wood here adds a tremendous sense of warmth. Next, and in incredible contrast to the hard lines of the transat, we have the bibendum, which is a word that I will trip over, um, so just be warned. The bibendum armchair, which is named after, of all things, the French name of the Michelin Man. Side note, the French tire manufacturer has used the man made out of tires as its mascot since 1894, which has to be one of the longest-running mascot uses ever. But what interests me most here is that the Michelin Man was already probably deeply ingrained in the culture by the time Gray designed her chair 32 years after it debuted. Gray and others of her time are clearly looking beyond the well-known form of the chair for ideas about what the chair of the future could be. Where once iconography like lion's paws or ram's heads or acanthus leaves might be details of a chair, now the source of inspiration may form its entire shape. The Bibendum chair, with its stacked curving tubes of leather upholstery, does indeed look just like the Michelin Man. Gray even designed a chair with one upholstered arm and one steel tube arm so a person could comfortably carry on a conversation and smoke without worrying about burning holes in the upholstery. Her furnishings truly were machines to aid in the process of living. As we leave her works, consider this quote of hers. Nowhere did we attempt to create a line or a form for its own sake. Everywhere we thought of the human being, his sensibility, his needs. Le Corbusier had such a potent language to engage the world with his work. Words are very powerful tools, and his concept of the home as a machine for living certainly captured the imagination. It is worth noting that he would have been sued by the owner of his famous Villa Savoie had World War II not broken out. As rainwater leaked into virtually every room of the flat-roofed, gutterless, windowsill-free structure, when Mrs. Savoie expressed early complaints of the problem, Le Corbusier is rumored to have responded something like, Well, you know, you really should put a book out for visitors to sign with all the good press the design is getting all around the world. I say this not to be as incredibly disparaging as I sound, but to point out the apparent insincerity of the great architect's words. His works were not simply machines to solve specific problems. They were strong aesthetic decisions that often ignored the function they were meant to serve. Still, we should explore some of Le Corbusier's major contributions to the world of chairs. He, of course, hated previously held notions of furniture and instead preferred to think of them as equipment for the home. He liked what he viewed as practical furniture, made of inexpensive materials, quipping that a good servant is discreet and self-effacing, leaving his master free. We're probably most f familiar with his model LC3, which is a slightly modified version of his earlier 1928 B302. 
The modifications were made in 1959 by the Italian manufacturer Cassina in order to simplify the mass production process. The result was a very square club chair with fat, taut black leather box cushions and an exterior frame of chromed steel tubing. It was even more machine-like than Le Corbusier's original version. The original was made of steel tubing that was enameled, so it was more colorful than Cassina's chromed steel tubes. Rather than the tailored black leather upholstery, the cushions were more overstuffed and appeared looser. It actually looked like something you may want to sit in for a while. And actually, very recently, Cassina has introduced a range of seven enamel colors for the frame, which have been approved by the Le Corbusier Foundation, so you can have a taste nearer to that of the original. Uh, when Cassina approached Le Corbusier about expanding the chair to a sofa, however, shortly after it was released in 1959, he refused, declaring, Chairs are architecture, sofas are bourgeois. Apparently, the chaise long was fine, though. As the first tubular steel-framed piece of furniture Le Corbusier's studio designed was the B306, Despite my feelings toward the famous architect, I must admit this chaise is truly comfortable and ingenious. Canvas stretches over a frame that conforms to the contours of a reclining body, and half-moon-shaped gliders allow the frame to change positions so your feet can be elevated over your head if you'd like. Earlier versions of the chair functioned as reclining rocking chairs. Still, it's not something the average person would think to sit in every day. Le Corbusier did actually try to buy Eileen Gray's E1027 house, but was unable to do so, and so built himself a vacation house a short distance away. He drowned swimming in the waters below in 1965, and I'm sounding a little bit facetious, and he, he really is somebody that we should admire for his huge contribution, but it is a little irritating to um, to listen to his diatribe sometimes. Anyway, it should be mentioned that many chairs from this period were designed for specific houses. Actually, plenty of much older chairs were too, but this was the era of the Gesamtkunstwerk, or a house as a total work of art, where one person would design the house as well as all of its fixtures and furnishings. Honestly, I think the early modernists were just fabulous marketers. There's no reason they should own the market on this concept. The Victorians aside, as they famously made their houses out of all kinds of exotic elements demonstrating their far-reaching travels, many, many places throughout history were similarly conceived by a single mind or at least by a single studio. It's just that now, in the mid-century, there's a single name attached to a project and a more stringent set of rules to follow. Frank Lloyd Wright was the American leader of this concept of the Gesamtkunstwerk, um, and we'll get to his beautiful but ridiculous chair in just a moment, but let's stay in Europe and look at Gerrit Rietveld for, for just a second, because I actually quite like the zigzag chair he designed to occupy his house for Truth Schroeder in Utrecht, Netherlands. And I'm sure that my pronunciation is horrifying. Uh, Rietveld was greatly influenced by the Distill movement, which is a subject for another conversation, but because of this, much of his work, especially his red and blue chair from 1917, looks like a Mondrian painting. 
his most important house, the Schroeder Schrader house, I just mentioned before, was conceived with an open, changeable, non-hierarchical plan in mind. In this case, the architecture was meant to encourage the home's inhabitants, Mrs. Schroeder and her children, to relate to one another in a new, more open way. This was as much a goal of the client as it was of Rietveld's. Like the house itself, the zigzag chair he designed for it is a collage of flat planes. It is made of four pieces of flat plywood connected to form the letter Z with one extra ligature sticking up to form the back. It is a pure form, and I like it because, though it was created for a specific context, its singular form is really very beautiful in a huge variety of rooms. This one, for me, is a piece that you can live or that can live in a designer's bag of tricks and appear again and again without feeling overplayed. Rietveld's architecture was groundbreaking, and his experimentation with bent plywood and steel tube really did move the needle forward where chairs are con concerned. So I don't really feel the inclusion of his numerous works is particularly driven by his name. Okay, so now let's come stateside for a little bit and talk about Frank Lloyd Wright. He's another huge figure like Le Corbusier, but has less pieces of furniture that have been mass-produced. I think this is because he has several distinct movements in his career, and each one seems to offer differently detailed accessories that go with it. Le Corbusier's concepts were more singular. They could apply to everything, everywhere, all the time. Wright would recycle designs, but his furniture was not of the same universal nature, and much of it doesn't quite work devoid of the complete world he created it to occupy. Some of it never quite worked at all. The three-legged steel tube chair he designed for S.C. Johnson employees frequently tipped over and landed their inhabitants on the floor, so Mr. Johnson insisted they be redesigned with four legs instead. One thing I do really admire about Frank's furniture is that it looks really warm and inviting. There is none of the austerity present in the work of his European contemporaries. Still, I don't know of a right chair that is exceedingly comfortable or good at solving the problem of sitting. So the three right chairs included here are almost certainly here because of who made them and not how well they connected with their audience or with the human body. If earlier practitioners like Garrett Rietveld moved the needle forward, as I said, Charles and Ray Eames blew the doors wide open. This couple was genius in the marketing department, but they were really deeply engaged in solving real problems using bent plywood. Prior to the introduction of their bent wood lounge chair in 1945, they were commissioned by the U.S. Navy to provide lightweight, inexpensive splints for those with leg injuries. Their work would have failed if it couldn't carefully consider the actual forms of the human body. This experience carried into their chair production, and Charles Eames can be quoted as saying, In our chairs, we have not attempted to solve the problem of how people should sit. Instead, we accepted the way people do sit and operated in that framework. I'm not sure toward whom exactly, but this has the air of shots fired to me. More than 10 of the 1,000 chairs included here are credited to Charles and Ray Eames, and most continue to be purchased regularly by the masses today. 
forming connections on a myriad of levels, theirs are chairs that do live up to the blockbuster level of those historical chairs like the Wingback and the Berger and the Klismos chair we mentioned a couple of weeks ago. Except that unfortunately their cult status means they're often out of reach for the masses. There is more to be said of works by Erosernan and Harry Bertoia, but I think I'd like to end this week with a small selection of some of the most bizarre chairs included in this book. First, there's a series by Piero Fornasetti. If you're not familiar with this Italian artist's work, you should be. Um, if nothing else, Cole and Son has a terrific collection of Fornasetti wallpapers that look great almost anywhere. Uh, anyway, his work could best be described as theatrical and fantastical. A piece of furniture is never just that. It's a place to tell a story. The chairs included are rather obscure, but important. They are screen-printed, lacquered scenes, or rather, figures, on molded plywood. If they aren't human heads making up the seat back, then they're classical columns, or column capitals. Already by the mid-1950s, we're seeing those at the forefront engaged in wholesale rejection of the purity of the modern movement that Le Corbusier worked so hard to create, that modern movement devoid of all applied ornament. The same professor I mentioned earlier and referred to as a tyrant said that when she went to Paul Rudolph's Yale Architecture School building, which opened in 1963, she thought, ah, the glimmerings of postmodernism are here. I'm not sure how she could have known, but anyway, it's a hideous and lovely building, and hideous because it's brooding and mean on the street, but lovely because it has moments of enveloping warmth, and where my professor did see signs of postmodernism, was in its prominent display of ancient Greek and Roman friezes in active conversations with the materials of the modern world. And I say, I don't know how she could have known, simply because in 1963, I don't know that it had really been identified just to the layperson that postmodernism was in swing. Anyway, um, with this in mind, I'd like to bring us full circle back to what is certainly the ugliest chair being discussed today, titled Blow, designed by Giannatin de Paz and Donato de Urbino in 1967. It is a goofy, not especially important chair, except that it is one of the very first inflatable chairs, and it bears a very strong resemblance to the chair we began with today, Eileen Gray's Bibendum chair. I bring us here to say, this back-and-forth conversation of applying new materials to old forms or old materials to new forms is what makes design continuously exciting. Espousing stringently to personal aesthetic rules can actually be a good tool for growth in some cases, but then breaking those rules and exploring new frontiers can push you to new heights. I hope you'll go out this week and break your own rules and maybe even encourage your clients to break theirs, which, as you all know, can be very difficult. We have plenty of chairs you'll love and some I'm sure you'll hate at DanielHouse.club, so consider joining as a member. Um, it's a great deal if you're an interior designer just starting out or if you are one who has practiced for 20 years. We are in the business of helping you 
design more profitably and seamlessly. I'll talk to you again next week, and until then, go out and find your favorite chairs.